So today, uh, I want to talk on a topic that was horrible English. So today I want to discuss something that came up actually a few times this past week uh, in my self-defense classes, in working with hospitals and uh, with some private clients that I had uh, recently uh, for shooting. And the whole idea of uh, legal application of using self-defense, right? And before I start, I have to say it, I have to put it out there, um, this kind of like legal disclaimer, I am not an attorney. I am not allowed to give legal advice. Nobody should take my legal advice. Um, I am going to discuss strictly from my understanding uh, of the law, uh, somebody that teaches self-defense on the teacher's firearms, someone that has uh, had the opportunity to testify in court on use of force cases, and I am going to give you my interpretation, my understanding, more than anything when it comes to articulating and decision-making of using force and to what extent. So if you have any questions after today's episode about uh, specific scenarios, specific topics, first of all, I would highly recommend you uh, reach out to an attorney and ask them. Uh, you're more than welcome to reach out to me. Um, I'll probably just forward it to an attorney I know and have them get in touch with you and answer your question uh, just because, again, I'm not allowed to do so. But with that, uh, let's, uh, let's frame it. We are silver savages, meaning a bunch of us learn self-defense, a bunch of us carry firearms, some of us carry knives and other tools, right? We have families we want to protect. We do that all from the standpoint that there is a chance that at some point, if I carry those tools, right, a knife, a gun, whatever it is, I carry because I feel that at some point I may have to use it, right? If I didn't think I'm going to have to use it, I probably don't need to carry around that hunk of steel that just weighs my pants down every time, right? So if I am thinking in that matter, right, I need to already start pre-planning for the moment after, right? If I go unprepared and I don't understand the big picture of what's going to happen in a real encounter, then I am essentially, what's the saying? If I am failing to train, I'm training to fail. Or if I'm failing to plan, I'm planning to fail, right? So that's the reality. If I am not planning accordingly, if I am not uh, thinking about everything that will lead up to the moment that I pull the trigger and after I pull the trigger, then I am doing myself a disservice. When we talk about decision-making of how much force I want to use and um, how to apply it and then how to document and articulate it, we typically fall back to a Supreme Court case that is called Graham versus Connor. It's based off of the Fourth Amendment. You can check it out in 1989. And I will give you the general gist of it. Again, not an attorney. Uh, go and research further in depth if you want to. But in Graham versus Connor, that's just one of a few Supreme Court cases, by the way. There's also Tennessee versus Garner and uh, Terry versus Ohio. There's a lot of, uh, of cases that will frame law enforcement use of force, anything from the stop and frisk to um, the fling felon idea. But um, some of it we can translate to civilians as well. And when we talk about Graham versus Connor, if I gave you the simplified scenario, we have a police officer sitting in his cruiser across from, a, let's say, a 7-Eleven type store, right? One of those uh, stop and rob type places. And he's, uh, he's, he's sitting in his car and he sees a vehicle pull up. The passenger gets out of the car, goes into that store, comes out a couple seconds later, and they bolt. They screech there. They drive away. So if you're the police officer sitting across the street, right, what do you think just happened? Whenever I pose that question to a class or to a student, the answer is typically pretty obvious, and the answer is a robbery. 
right? So this police officer, assuming a robbery, actually pursues the vehicle, ends up pulling them over and goes to interact with the passenger who is very violent and aggressive in dealing with him. The police officer ends up using force in affecting an arrest. Turns out the passenger was a diabetic individual and because of an episode he was having, they were stopping to look for something with sugar and he did not find it or couldn't get it. For whatever reason, they end up driving to the next place over. Right? I don't know if you ever dealt with diabetic individuals, but since our brain is very susceptible to levels of uh, water and of uh, sugar, of uh, glucose and glycogen, then um, we start acting inappropriately when those levels are uh, skewed. So this person became very violent, very aggressive, which is a typical behavior to a diabetic individual. Um, he ended up suing. He said, listen, I never broke the law. I never robbed that 7-Eleven. Um, there was really no reason to chase me, to pull me over or to arrest me. And certainly not using force in affecting an arrest. Supreme Court decided that uh -uh, we cannot judge these cases. Hindsight 2020. Based on the information known to the officer at that time, where is actions reasonable right and that is the key term reasonable if i pose the question the scenario to you and you tell me well it's reasonable for him to assume there was a robbery there is actions were reasonable right that is in a vague sense how it's going to work for civilians as well in theory the whole idea of a trial and a jury is to convince 12 other people jury of your peers right that your actions were reasonable. So how do we go ahead and do so? So there are two terms that we usually apply. One of them is what's called the use of force continuum. The continuum essentially is an escalating level chart, in a sense, of different presentation by the assailant and response options by me, or if you're working with law enforcement, then by the police officer. There are some that are very basic, and sound that are very elaborate. And I'll be honest, the more elaborate that sequence of levels of force is, the more open to interpretation it becomes and the more confusing uh, for the individual it is as well, right? So there are some agencies I work with whose use of force continuum has 20 some different levels, which is no wonder why police officers get in trouble. They're like, I can remember, you know, the little nuances between one level and the other, but you can bet that a defense attorney will know those levels and the little nuances, right? So that doesn't always help having more levels. At the very basic format, right, we're gonna have four levels. We're gonna have a compliant individual. Second level would be an aggressive or non-compliant individual. Third level would be an assaultive individual. And the fourth level would be any kind of a life-threatening situation, right? So if I ask you, what would be your response options when you're dealing with a compliant individual? The answer is pretty obvious. If I'm dealing with someone that's complying, ask someone to leave the premise, you know, anything like that, and they've done it, I don't have to do anything. My response option is just being plain professional. That's about it, right? Okay, so if I am a law-abiding citizen and let's say I'm getting into an altercation with someone and I tell, listen, sir, you have to leave the scene, the fact that I have a gun on me, a knife, and no self-defense should not matter. If they complied, I'm not using any of that. I'm just maintaining my presence, staying vigilant just in case, and just watching them leave. Second level, I don't know if you guys can hear the rain, but it's pretty cool uh, sitting in the camper and hearing the rain outside. Uh, second level is an aggressive or non-compliant individual. At this level, the person is not fighting me, but they're not compliant. They're not doing what I asked them to do, right? So that person that I asked them to leave, they're just standing there. They're not leaving. So at this point, I have a few options, right? 
first of all, I need to increase my presence if possible. So make sure that they know I'm serious, right? Use my verbal commands. Make sure people around, if I'm in public, hear me, verbalize my request and my demands, right? Explain why I'm asking that person to leave, right? If I know any kind of verbal de-escalation techniques, maybe I can use that to try to convince the individual to follow suit. Um, if that doesn't work, then certainly escalating in sense of calling 911, getting the professionals involved. Uh, maybe I have a couple of friends that are going to come and stand behind me and that presence of force, that presence in numbers, right, would be enough. I certainly cannot go ahead and draw my gun and I probably should not go hands-on either. And if I do, to the minimal extent, meaning maybe I put my hands on their shoulder and guide them out, right, in a non-aggressive manner. So that's what I'm going to do with a non-compliant individual. Now, let's say that aggressive or non-compliant individual escalates to the next level, assaultive. At this point, they begin striking, punching, kicking, maybe even going for some tools of their own. At that level, as a civilian, I certainly have the right for self-defense, right? So I'm going to do whatever I need to do to protect myself and a loved one, right, to the extent of even using my own hands and feet, if needs be, right? Um, this is where I'm going to add a little caveat. This is not the only variable. This, as I said, a second term we're going to refer to in a second. But in theory, if someone punches me, I have the right to punch him back right and then the fourth level life-threatening right at this point whatever it is that they're doing may cause severe bodily harm or death and at this point i can do whatever i need to do to save my life and life of others around me to the inclusion of using my own firearm if i have one right by the way i'm referring to firearms i don't have to right i can kill someone without a firearm right so the idea is that the levels of force are not dependent on a tool but it's the understanding of what that force can accomplish, right? Is it going to hurt someone really bad or is it going to potentially kill them and so forth, right? So those are the four, le four levels. Now, I, I said that it's not always black and white, right? There's a lot of gray in between. And going back to the assaultive individual, the person that was punching at me, right? Think about it this way. There's a difference between me being punched by a 30-year-old gangbanger that is trying to rob me, mug me or whatever, or hurt a family member, or if I'm being punched by a 7-year-old that's afraid, right, or in pain, right, they're both punching me, it's the same act, I'm not going to respond in the same manner to both, right, I'm probably going to punch back that 30-year-old, but I'm not punching a 7-year-old, right, there's other things I can do, so... The second term that's important for us to understand, it's what's called totality of circumstances, which essentially is all the variables that affect my decision-making processes. Whether I'm dealing with a female or a male, a young person or an older person, right? Are they bigger or smaller? Are they trained or untrained? Which I may or may not know, right? But everything, the numbers of people, if I'm confronted by seven individuals, my level of force is going to be different than if I'm dealing with one person and I have seven friends with me, right? That just changed that whole image and that whole perception and the all response options that are available, right? Because we have to understand another thing. When we talk about using force, the general general understanding or the general formula that we use is goes something like this. The use of force used to stop a threat should be in direct relation to the force used to initiate the threat using the least amount of force required to stop the threat, right? So it has to be in direct relation but it also has to be the minimal amount of force, right? This is where the whole idea of excessive force comes in. Was there something else I could have done that would have stopped the threat that did not necessitate me going as high as I did, right? So again, number of people matter. Uh, 
anything else if it's inside outside if you're sick one day and you know that you cannot sustain a fight for very long because you're not feeling well you don't have the energy and you know that if you're gonna stay in that fight you're probably gonna end your ass ended to you then maybe that is a way for me to articulate escalating a little faster and a little bit higher in that continuum right uh, what if i'm confronted with someone that has a t-shirt let's say that said brazilian jiu-jitsu should i assume they're trained individuals i don't know but I'm certainly going to account for it when I'm dealing with that individual. As a police officer, if I'm dealing with someone that he's, uh, let's say their vehicle has Glock stickers and NRA sticker and six hour stickers and whatever other brand you think of stickers, should I assume they are armed? Reality is, I don't know, but you can bet that I'm approaching a little bit more carefully that individual for the chance that they would. It is part of my totality of circumstances. It's part of all the variables that I'm going to be accounting for if I need to start going hands-on or escalating my force options. Another example I often use, typically when dealing with the clinical staff members at hospital, is what happens if somebody spits on me, okay? So knowledge of bodily fluids is very prevalent in the healthcare environment for obvious reasons. Uh, they are confronted by people that spit at them, throw feces at them, urine, blood, you name it, they probably dealt with it. There is a very visceral response when somebody is spitting at you. It's disgusting, it's degrading, I want to punch them. And from a legal standpoint, it is an assault, it is a felony. So in theory, I should be able to punch them back. But if we remember the last criteria on that definition, using the least amount of force necessary, is there something else I can do that would allow me to stop the threat without necessarily having me punch them? So if you think about it, I can take a step back to where the speed cannot reach me. I can close a door. I can pull a shirt over their face. I can force their head out of the direction. There's a lot of other things I can do that would solve my problem, not necessitating me striking at them. We also have to understand, and again, putting it in context, me striking at them is going to cause a da some damage. I'm going to bruise them. I'm going to hurt them. I'm going to break something. That is what a punch is designed to do. Them spinning on me probably will not harm me. And what I'm saying is, I know people usually throw, well, what about if they're sick and you get whatever it is that they have? So we're talking about pathogens. Let's put pathogens to the side for a second. I'll get back to it in a minute. But the saliva itself, the urine itself, the feces itself, as disgusting and degrading it is, and I bet a bunch of you are shaking your heads right now and thinking, I'm going to punch that motherfucker that just threw shit at me. And I can understand that. I can relate to that. But the reality is you shouldn't because that shit is not hurting you. It is disgusting, but it is not hurting you. Now, if we bring pathogens back into the mixture, what if they're sick? What if they have COVID, HIV, Hep C, whatever it is, right? Can I punch them now? They are harming me. Can I harm them back? The reality is that you have to base that. First of all, do you know that they have any of that? Which you may or may not. If you work at the healthcare environment, you may know about any disease that they may have. But if I'm in public, I don't know that about a person. I cannot use that as a reasoning. I certainly, either way, do not know if I contracted it, which means until I get the blood work done, if you flank blood at me, let's say, and you are HIV positive, and I know that you are, I don't know that I got it. And actually, arguably, me punching you increases the chances of me getting contaminated even more once you start bleeding and I start bleeding, right? So I'm just making things worse, but that's a side note. So I don't know if they have it. I certainly don't know if I have it. And thirdly, 
even if I did contract it, and even if I had by miraculous way the ability to know that at that point in time, would me punching them stop the contamination? And the reality is that it wouldn't. So for all those reasons, me striking is not an applicable force option when somebody is spinning at me or throwing any type of bodily fluids at me. So again, putting everything back together, when I have to make a decision about how high I can go on that continuum of force will depend on what level of force they're exhibiting, I can't go above it, and what are the totality of circumstances, okay? So what is all the what are all the variables that affect my decision-making process, and is it reasonable? When I'm gonna go and explain this in court with other people knowing the same information, would have come to the same conclusion. And that is essentially how this is going to get judged. Now, I'm going to build on this one more thing, and this came up again this week in a few of the conversations, articulating and documenting. So, from a civilian standpoint, and then there's other elements, obviously, that affect a law enforcement officer. There's other uh, re regulatory uh, controls that have, to have in place anything from local, state, federal, and agency-specific regulations and laws. Uh, so we're not going to get into that. This podcast is designed for civilians, so we're going to stick to that at the moment. But when, if I end up using self-defense for, uh, sorry, any act for self-defense, so if I end up, let's say, shooting someone, going, going with an extreme, but by the way, it doesn't have to be. I can go hands-on just in protecting myself and living in America, being the litigating society that it is, I'm probably still going to get sued. So as a sidebar, I highly recommend you have some sort of insurance Okay, certainly if you carry a firearm, uh, but even if you don't, uh, it goes a long way and it, it really, it's worth it weight in gold. So let's let's leave it at that. And if you want my suggestion on one, I'll throw it out there. And, and just so you know, I'm not getting anything from them. Um, the one I choose is US Law Shield. I did a lot of research about a lot of other ones, including USCCA, which is the most popular one in America, and some other one. US Law Shield I like because A, there's no limit on covers. B, they cover all self-defenses, not just firearms. So I'm more likely to go hands-on and that would still cover me. They're actually one of the cheaper ones. And most importantly for me, I actually had the opportunity to deal with their attorneys and they were super knowledgeable and super courteous and super helpful. And just based on that interaction that I had with them, that is the one I recommend. But I sidetrack. Let me go back to... Um, articulating. So if you end up using self-defense when police arrive to the scene, you don't want to be the one that clamps down. And not that you st there's anything wrong with it, you certainly don't want to start blurring shit and, and stuff out there. Um, and you you don't want to plead a thief in a sense, right? But the idea is that when you are dealing with law enforcement officer, not that they can hold it against you necessarily, but if I clamp down, it certainly doesn't make me look innocent. So the statement that I usually recommend people use is I was in fear for my life. I would be more than happy to give you a full statement once I talk to an attorney. So by saying so, you articulated that you were in fear for your life. So it automatically put some ease on the whole scenario. You were forthcoming about giving a full statement and you asked for an attorney, which if you get Mirandanized is a right you have anyways. By doing those three things, I'm not looking as a suspect or not looking guilty, at least temporarily. And I buy myself the time to talk to an attorney and certainly make sure that I give the right information in the right manner and don't give stuff that I'm not supposed to give that may be held against me, even if it's completely innocuous and innocent in my mind. A defense attorney, 
the geniuses that they are, will be able to twist everything or anything against you. So certainly be careful with words and make sure you consult an attorney. Now to that point, when you deal with your attorney and when you write a report and when you testify in court, details matter. I always say I can make pretty much anything make sense as long as you don't lie. And what I mean by that is everybody today has cameras, whether it's a location, a building, your house, your car, but certainly every person around with a smartphone. And as we see on YouTube, day in and day out, everything gets recorded. I can, whatever you put in the report, I can probably articulate in a manner that makes sense until you say something that is a lie. And if you lie, I cannot defend that anymore. So you certainly want to keep that in mind. But when I talk about detail, what I found out testifying in court and reviewing reports upon reports of uh, corporations that we train and we help, what I found out is people are afraid to put detail. It's almost as if they feel that the more detail they put in, it's going to be held against them. And it's a natural response that we all have, right? But the reality is that I need people reading that report to see, hear, taste, feel everything that I did. And the only way I can do it is via detail. Remember that totality of circumstances we discussed about. I need the people reading the report or the jury on, on the trial to feel and put themselves in my shoes for a brief moment. If I said I shot that person because they attacked me, it would be different if I said I shot that person because he was approaching me aggressively, holding a knife in his hand, he's six foot two, 264 pound, yelling, I'm going to kill you as he's coming, and I had my baby my baby daughter in my arm. I just had a detail, same exact scenario, but in which one of those I just shot him because I defended myself or because he attacked me, or I shot him because of all the added variables that I put in. Which one are you more likely to support my actions? Obviously the second one, and all I did was that detail. Detail matters. The words I choose matter. So you certainly don't want to be shy on detail, but you want to do it with an attorney that can support you and help you articulate things in the correct manner. So, pretty brief discussion. I like keeping this podcast now a little bit shorter unless I'm interviewing somebody. And I hope you found it beneficial. I hope you never have to use any of this. Uh, but the reality is that if you are listening to this, you're a savage, you're preparing for the worst day, whether defending yourself or defending a loved one, whether you're learning self-defense or you carry a gun, or maybe you're not doing other, but you just find yourself in a situation. Keep this in mind. Continuum of force, what level of force they're using, match that, don't go above it. Totality of circumstances, all the variable. Use the least amount of force necessary to stop the threat. Make it reasonable. And then provide detail and the proper articulation when you provide a report or documentation for that incident. If you have any questions about this, uh, legal issues, again, consult an attorney. If you want to ask me, I'll be more than happy to forward it and give you an answer. Uh, but again, I cannot stress enough, I am not an attorney. I am not allowed to give you legal advice. And if there's anybody out there that feels that I misspoken on anything, please do chime up. Let me know. We can all benefit from it and learn. This is just based on my personal experience and uh, history teaching this and doing this in courts. With that note, I'm going to let you guys go and enjoy your week. Uh, we're going into a holiday weekend, so my next podcast will drop on Christmas Day. So none of you have an excuse not to hear it because none of you are working. It's a federal holiday, even if you're Jewish. And I wish you all a wonderful week. Enjoy, be safe, be healthy, and stay savage.